0: Well as these guys are uh, passing the offering buckets, let me have you turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 2 and we will get right into the message this morning. If, if you're here this morning, maybe for the first time, uh, we have been in a study of Revelation, the seven churches uh, in Asia that, that Jesus Christ specifically addressed in the book of Revelation through the Apostle John. And uh, this is like our 21st message out of this series, and we're in chapter two, so we're on pace to finish. Never, <laughs> and praise the Lord for that, man. It's been really, really good. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the Church of Thyatira. We'll finish the passage uh, in Revelation chapter two. Uh, we'll actually finish the chapter by God's grace this morning. Let me remind you, we're studying seven churches. That number one were real historical churches. Those churches existed in the first century. Uh, These were churches that Christ himself had a specific letter to address uh, things going on in that church. Sometimes that letter had uh, commendation, where churches were doing things good, and Christ noticed that, and he commended those churches for that. Sometimes those letters had correction, because some of those churches needed correcting. Uh, There were things that they had wavered in, their faith had wavered, they had allowed things to come into their church and so there was correction. In each of these seven churches, Christ reveals something about himself specifically to that church that they needed to know to overcome their situation and their circumstances and the things that they were struggling with. And then there's always a challenge at the end of it where Christ says, okay, if you overcome, here's the blessing of overcoming. And, and his character and how he reveals himself is the key to overcoming the challenges that each of those seven churches face so So these are seven real historical churches but but secondly, they also represent seven types of churches that have existed for the last two thousand years as we As we look at these seven churches, uh, we can find that that every church that's ever existed probably f- fell into the category of one of these churches uh and so for us as a church, we need to be mindful which of these churches best represents us and which of these churches should we strive to be. As a matter of fact, there are a few in here uh, that we could probably say, hey, let's model ourselves after this particular church. They also represent for us the entirety of church history because as John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he's looking back at the things which has, have been. And Christ is, is writing, John is writing from a very unique perspective. We covered that early in our study. And so if that's news to you this morning, you need to go back and, and, and listen to some previous sermons. But John's perspective is he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And Christ is telling him to write the things that he has seen, past tense. And so as he looks back over the entirety of church history, what God gives us in the book of Revelation is also an overview of all of church history. As a matter of fact, It actually breaks down very interestingly. Ephesus represents for us the period from 90 A.D. to 200 A.D., right after the death of the apostles. And Christ says of of believers in that time period that they left their first love. And, And we know historically that after the death of the apostles, man, good men that were saved and that loved God and loved his word, began to deviate in their writings and in their their understanding of doctrine. And it deviated from what Christ and the apostles and even Paul taught. And so the apostolic church fathers, if you will, began to deviate away from sound doctrine. And again, man, it's hard to say that because many of those men gave their life because of their belief. Many of them were killed and martyred for their faith. And yet, God's word... Was, was beginning to be corrupted. In Ephesus, Christ corrected that church because he says there's people in, in Ephesus that say they are apostles and they're not. And, and we've studied the, the apostolic giftedness and the apostolic ministry and how uh, that has ceased as it relates to Christ's 12 apostles. And so in Ephesus, man, there were still people claiming to be apostles of Jesus Christ, not, not just sent ones from a church, but actually the apostles of Christ. They were in error, and then we see that the age of Smyrna carries us from 200 to 325 AD, and, and Christ didn't have any correction for this church because it was a period of tremendous persecution. And so, really, the Lord's instruction to those at Smyrna was to be faithful to the death, and many of them, many of them were. By the way, they they just believed simply what the Word of God said. It was a great time of persecution against true believers in Christ, and then we entered into the Pergamus period. And in 325 to 500 A.D., the devil changed his tactic as it relates to his opposition to Christianity. You see, in Ephesus and Smyrna, the devil just came against the church with persecution. And it seemed like the more people that were martyred and killed for their faith, the greater the church grew. And the gospel spread. And, and so the devil you know, probably realized, hey, this is not working. Let's change tactics and so he does. And, and what he does in the Pergamos church period from 325 to 500 AD is he marries and counterfeits biblical Christianity. He marries that to paganism historically. And he takes a Babylonian religious system that's been present ever since Genesis chapter 10 that's called Jezebel in the book of Revelation. And through a man named Constantine, who had no true biblical conversion, he saw a sign in the, in the sky and heard a voice that said, by this sign, you shall conquer. And he painted crosses on all of his soldiers' armor and shield, and and at the Battle Battle of Milvian Bridge, fought against a man named Maxentius. Both of them were emperors in Rome, and he was the victor. And through his victory, Rome became a, quote-unquote, Christian nation. By the way, a term that's never used in the Bible. There's no such thing biblically as a Christian nation. And so this political system embraced and was married to a religious system and that's a key point in history because it changed everything all of a sudden a roman empire that was steeped in idolatry and paganism and idol worship became christianized you could call it the christianization of paganism or you could call it the paganizing of christianity either way god says this thing is not biblical as a matter of fact there's a seat of Satan that is established in, in Pergamos. And so, and, and so now we've been into to Thyatira, and, and historically what we see is now a woman named Jezebel. And this woman named Jezebel has crept into the church, and she is able to propagate her false doctrine throughout Christianity. Jezebel was a historically real person, for sure. We looked at that last week but she also represents Satan's counterfeit religious system. We're going to get more into that this morning as we wind down the chapter. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, Thyatira is a very interesting city in your Bible because there's only two places that it's mentioned, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation 1 and 2, and then Acts chapter 16. And in both instances of the mention of Thyatira, there's a woman associated. In Revelation, it's Jezebel. In Acts chapter 16, it's a woman named Lydia, and, and we, we studied Lydia extensively two weeks ago, and we said that Lydia was a picture or a type of the bride of Christ. She's a, a picture of true believers in Christ. She received the Word of God with a readiness of mind. She put her faith and trust in what was taught to her by Paul and his missionary team. She was baptized. She served them As a humble servant of the Lord, she actually opened her home and allowed them to come in and she ministered to them. She represents for us what biblical Christianity really is. Lydia is a great picture of the virtuous woman. She's she's an industrious woman. She was the first convert in the European mission trip. And then this other woman connected with Thyatira is Jezebel. And Jezebel, man, listen, is a nasty, nasty woman. Nasty woman, man. Witchy woman. (laughs) Home wrecker, you know what I'm saying? I mean, she's just a bad woman. And historically, what is God telling us in Revelation Two? Is the same woman that was in Second Kings somehow resurrected? No, but that system is still in place in Revelation chapter two. And so those two women represent for us two types of religious system, but they also represent those two women represent every type of professing Christian, because there are real professing Christians, and there's just religious people. And we've got to figure out which one we are. And so that's the, the key to, to Thyatira. And then secondly, we learn in Thyatira that Christ reveals something very unique about himself. And, and if you just look at it again, uh, this is all review to get us where we need to get. But, but Christ says of himself to Thyatira, These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are, are like fine brass. And so Christ reveals himself to Thyatira as the Son of God. A phrase that's not found anywhere else in the book of Revelation. He he reveals himself as God in the flesh. God meaning he has deity and he has authority. And where this religious system has taken over, the Lord just reminds that church and, and he reminds Jezebel, I am God. I'm God. It talks about his eyes being like a flame of fire, and that represents his justice, and his feet are like fine brass, and that represents his judgment that ultimately will crush Satan, and it will crush the Mount of Olives, and as we saw in Isaiah 63, it will crush sinners. And then thirdly, we talked about the commendation that, that, that Christ had to this church. He says, I know thy works, in verse 19, and thy charity and thy service and thy faith and thy patience and thy works And the last shall be more than the first. And, and, and man, Christ just cleared off some some space to say, you know what, Thyatira, you're a loving church. You're an uplifting church. Man, you have faith. You're long-suffering. And, oh, by the way, your works at the end are even more than the beginning. In other words, you're not like most Christians who serve God for a moment and then coast the rest of their life. You actually, at the end, have works that are greater than, than the first. And that's something to be commended. That's something that, that we should strive to be. And then he begins to correct this church in verse 20. He says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, and to commit fornication, and to eat things offered. To idols. And so last week, we really started digging down on Jezebel. We, we, we tried to understand biblically. In the Old Testament, there was a literal woman named Jezebel, and she brought Baalism, that system of religion, in to pervert Israel away from the true worship of God. We saw in, in the church age that this religious system is still in place, and there's a figurative woman named Jezebel that's still at work. And she counterfeits true biblical Christianity. But we said God's trying to show us something in Revelation because prophetically, this system of Jezebel will be the religious system of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. And, 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 and those that are deceived by her and those that commit fornication with her will be destroyed. And so God is painting a, a powerful picture through Jezebel. So this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 21. And by God's grace, in the next 20 minutes, we will get through the end of the chapter. Look at verse 21. God says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Okay, so let's. last week we, we said, okay, we gotta look, we got to look for Jezebel all through history. And we did that. We tracked her as the historical woman and then the, as the figurative woman now and the prophetic woman that will show up in the trib. But this morning we want to do the same thing but show how God's going to judge her. And so this morning we're going to look at the judgment of Jezebel. And and to start with, we've got to go all the way back to 2 Kings. Now you're going to need to open your Bible this morning uh, because there's too many verses to put on the screen. 2 Kings chapter 9 is where you want to be. We're going to look at the judgment of Jezebel historically. How did God judge this woman that was a real woman in the Old Testament? And we get that story in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. We're going to kind of look at the whole chapter. But follow along with me as we, as we talk about it. Look at, look at verses 1 to 10. It says, Elisha the prophet. So now, you know, Elijah was kind of the main prophet when, with, with King Ahab's reign. Now he's appointed a, a, a disciple, if you will, Elisha, to be prophet in his stead. So Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, take out this box of oil in thy hand, go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you come there, look out. There Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, go in and make him arise up from his brethren, carry him to an inner chamber, take the box of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. And so so it's important for us to note that, that as God is about to judge Jezebel, he does so with a rightly anointed and appointed king named Jehu. All right, look at verse 7, and and God says to this king, I've anointed thee king over the people of Israel. Thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of who? Jezebel. Verse 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall... And you need to understand in your Old Testament that Ahab is a picture of the Antichrist and Jezebel is a picture of his false religious system. God's giving you that picture in the Old Testament. And listen, the whole house is going to perish. So, whatever the the devil thinks he's done in this world, listen, he may think he's winning. But I'm telling you, according to the authority of God's word, he's going to lose, he's going to fail. Christ will be victorious. A rightly appointed king will destroy him. And then God gives us a little bit of prophecy about Jezebel. It says in verse 9 I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in, in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. In other words, it's going to be like she never existed. Like, the judgment of God is going to be so severe, Ahab's whole house is going to be destroyed. And for that woman, Jezebel, she'll be completely consumed so that there's not even anything left to bury. I mean, that's, that's pretty graphic, right? When you, when you read about that, it's graphic. Skip down to verses 11 to 29, and we're not going to read that. But, but listen, the newly appointed king begins to take action. The first thing that he does in battle is he kills Joram. The king of Israel, who by the way is Ahab's son, and he also kills Ahazariah, ah- 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 yeah, Ahaziah. Ahaziah. Ha- 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 ha. It's hard to, you kind of get that thing rolling and it won't stop, man. It's like Ahaziah. He kills the king of Judah. And so, and so this rightful king kills both the king of Israel and the king of Judah because he's the rightful king. And again, God's showing you a picture of Christ through Jehu. Okay? And then you get to verse 30. And Jehu was come to Jezreel. And Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her face. And she tired her head. And she looked out at a window. In other words, she's in a tower looking down, right? She's elevated above this king, this rightful king. And Jehu entered in at the gate and said, Had Zimri peace, who slew his master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. And he said, Throw her down. Chunk her out the window. <laughs> so they threw her down. And listen, some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And he trode her under What? He crushed this woman. Now, now some people would say, well, the horses trod her underfoot. Well, that's not what it says. It says that he trod her underfoot, which is a picture of Christ crushing the enemy with those fine feet of brass. He trod her underfoot. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink. That's very interesting. And he said, go, see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she's the king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hand. Wherefore, they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by a servant, Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, our face of the field and the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, they shall not say, this is Jezebel. In other words, you won't even be able to recognize her. When God crushes this woman, historically, he tramples her underfoot. She's cast down from her tower. By the way, Jehu sees her through a window. There are windows in heaven, by the way, if, you, if you're a student of the Bible. He sees her through a window. She's cast down, and she's trampled, and she's utterly destroyed. She becomes as the dung of the ground. So that's what happened historically. Okay, well, well what about devotionally? How, how does, okay, so that's the historical woman, but we've said that woman also represents this religious system that's been on this earth really ever since Genesis chapter 10 and the Tower of Babel. How does God deal with her in this time period? How's God going to deal with her in, in, in our context of the church age? Remember, as we walk through these seven churches, Ephesus had false apostles, Smyrna had false Jews. In other words, people that said that they were Jews and are not, they were claiming the physical promises of the Jews as the spiritual promises to the church. That's called replacement theology. God has not replaced his people. God absolutely has not replaced the nation of Israel. They're going to have the greatest comeback story ever. And then in the Pergamos period, Satan has established his seat. He has a synagogue, and now he has a seat. He has a position of authority Historically in church history, it's the establishment of a Roman and political system, and it's the Christianization of paganism. And now in 500 to 1000 AD, that system historically is in full effect. And, and, and I've been very careful the last couple of weeks to not name a certain branch or, or, or name a certain system. But at this point, we're going to have to, because historically speaking, that Roman political religious system called the Roman Catholic Church, is in full force. Okay, so when God says in verse 21, go back to your Bible, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 21, when God says in Revelation 2 and verse 21 that Christianity has been counterfeited by the devil himself because he can't come against it because all it does is continue to spread, so now he counterfeits it. He says in verse 21, of this system Jezebel, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. And he gave her space to repent, by the way, in the Pergamus period. From 325 to 500 AD, as it was being established, God was patient. God was long-suffering. As a matter of fact, God was waiting for this Jezebelian false system of religion to repent, and yet she does not. And there comes a point where God's long-suffering runs out. And so look at Revelation 2 and verse 22. It says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, and I will kill her children with what? With death. You say, man, that's horrible. Well, it is horrible. But what's more horrible is not repenting to a God that calls you to a repentance. That's more horrible. And so this judgment is future. This is something that Christ says he's going to do. I'm, I will cast her into a bed. I will kill her children with death. Okay. And again, we're studying the period historically from 500 to 1,000 A.D. That's the Thyatira church period. When did God do this in church history? Well, it is very interesting that in 1347, this thing during the Sardis church period, as we'll get into in a couple of weeks, there was this thing called the bubonic plague that hit Europe, also known as the Black Death. And listen, it was called the Black Death because when people got infected with this, with this plague, usually they died within a period of a week. If they lived, parts of their body would just turn black and necrotic because the tissue would die. During this time, historically, from 1347 to 1352, during the time of the Black Plague, listen, 50% of the population of Europe died. About a third of the population of the Middle East died. At that time, historians tell us that the world population was approximately 475 million people it reduced to 350 million people because of the black plague so so estimates tell us and again it, it's hard to piece the numbers together but but historically as as people roughly estimate the number of people that died and the number of people of the population 26% of the world's population died that's staggering now, listen, we, we've been a part of a pandemic for sure for the last couple of years. To put that in perspective and just to compare it to something that we can identify with, with COVID-19, it's estimated globally that 6.17 million people have died globally because of COVID. Again, we know that those numbers are a little biased because it doesn't matter what you die of. If you have COVID, you, your cause of death is COVID. I understand, and again, man, I want to be sensitive because many of us know people or we have loved ones uh, who, who have died according to this. And, and so, but listen 6.17 million people globally have died from COVID. The world population is 7.9 billion people. And I'm not trying to, to be weird or, or make a, a, a political statement or a scientific statement, but that's 0.07% of the world's population. When the Black Plague hit this world, 25% of it died. That is great tribulation. It's not the great tribulation because it's going to be worse then. But God said, if you don't repent, if this religious system doesn't repent, I'm going to cast you into a bed and there's going to be death as a result. What's interesting when you study the Black Plague is that there was renewed religious fervor and fanaticism that bloomed in the wake of, of the Black Death. Okay, so some Europeans, because we don't know why this is happening, the Europeans began to target various groups, one of which was the Jews, which is very interesting to me. They also targeted friars and foreigners and beggars and pilgrims, and they blamed them for the crisis. There were many attacks against the Jewish communities. And all of a sudden, man, Jewish communities were being wiped out and massacred because somehow they called the blame. They called the blame for this. How was it their fault? Well, there's an outlashing against, again, man, God's chosen people. It is interesting that 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 is on rinse and repeat all throughout history. There were Jewish uh, communities in 1349 that were completely annihilated. By 1351, 60 major and 150 smaller Jewish communities had been destroyed during this period. Many Jews relocated to Poland, where they received a welcome from the current king. So God, historically in church history, because of this religious system, exercised some judgment, and and man, a lot of people, a lot of people died. Now, by the way, if those people died knowing Christ, they're in heaven. So I think Sam Miles said it a couple of weeks ago at Discipleship Conference. Sometimes we put a little too much stock in the beating heart because we're in this thing for eternity. Christ is eternal. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ, and eternal means eternal. And so if we know Christ, life on this planet is a vapor, according to the book of James. It's but for a moment, and then it'll pass away. But man, eternal life in Christ is eternal. And so man, you don't have to put all your stock in the beating heart. For this 60, 70, 80 years. Because there's an eternity that's guaranteed in the person of Jesus Christ. Man, come back next week, because we got to talk about that. So, so Jezebel was judged devotionally in the, in the context of church history in that period of 1347 to 1352. But now prophetically, let me give you one more. Man, all of that history is just pointing to what God's going to do prophetically with this religious system in the tribulation period. Because Jezebel, Satan's false political religious system, and her lovers will be cast into tribulation. It's called the great tribulation. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. It says, Then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world till this time, no, nor ever shall be. And as bad as we can see God's hand in history, and we can see things like the Black Plague, and we say, man, globally, that is horrible, and we see things like COVID-19, and man, we say, man, that hurts, that's horrible. It is. But can I just tell you that, listen, there's coming a time of great tribulation that this world has never seen. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened." And and, and so, man, it's going to be a tremendous worldwide persecution and judgment. Revelation 17, verses 1 to 5, talks about how prophetically Jezebel is that system of Antichrist. Look at verse 1. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth. They uh, have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Man, she looked beautiful having a golden cup in her hand. A chalice. But in that In that cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was written a name, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. Later in that chapter, verses 15 to 18, it says, He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the war sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This woman sits upon these waters of humanity on this earth. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and, and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God shall put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast and unto the words of, uh, until the word of God be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And again, prophetically, God is showing us all the way through the Bible. Ultimately, he's going to judge this system of Jezebel. Those that have committed fornication with her and eaten things offered to idols with her are going to be judged and destroyed by Christ. And I would say, man, listen, if you're wrapped up in that system, repent. Get out of it. Just get out of it, man. And, and, and again, as we'll see, it ain't labeled to just one system because, man, there's a lot of systems that, that paint their face like Jezebel. So, so what does Christ say to those in verse 24? Well, there's a, there's a charge. After he, he says there's a guaranteed judgment coming against Jezebel, then he charges verse 24 those that are uncorrupted in Thyatira. Now, now check this out. Verse 24, he says, But I say unto you, and I say unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And, and so uh, there is this statement in verse 24 that we have to kind of give credence to. He says that there are some people in Thyatira who had never who had never been a part of that system. In other words, there were people, Jezebel is propagating that doctrine within the church of Thyatira, and again, historically, we know the predominance of of that Roman political religious system that, that was overtaking the world, but let me just tell you, not everyone in church history had this doctrine. You see, when we study church history, we get a pretty skewed version of it, because scholars will tell you it's as simple as you're either Catholic or Protestant. Well, the truth is there's people all through church history that go all the way back to the book of Acts who were neither. In other words, there were people who were just Bible believers who were never part of a system that they had to reform from. They were never part of it. You say, well, church history doesn't teach that. Well, the Bible teaches that. And so I'm just going to stick with the Bible. I believe that there have always been people that just took God at his word. Now, listen, we're going to get to the Protestant Reformation historically in just a couple of weeks, and we're going to see that people certainly were a part of that system, that Roman Catholic system, and they began to see the flaws and errors in that system. And, man, they had a heart for God, and they wanted to reform that universal church. But... But can I just tell you, God never called for it to reform. God called for it to repent. And so God calls this doctrine of Jezebel, get it in your notes, he calls it the depths of Satan. And man, that, that's about as low in the rabbit hole as you can get, so to speak. Doesn't get any deeper and dark, darker than this doctrine of Jezebel. And again, that's not necessarily Sunday morning content, but, but you need to know. God's version of this, God's view of this system is, man, that's, that's the depths of Satan. And, and can I just tell you, listen, what God wants you to know as a believer in Christ, instead of the depths of Satan, God wants you to know, and God wants you as a believer in Christ to experience the deep things of God. That's what he wants you to know. You see, you don't have to experience the depths of Satan in religion. God wants you to know the deep things of God. He tells us that in First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. He says, As it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And most preachers stop right there and say, Man, we just can't know what God would have for us. We can't see it with our eyes. We can't hear it with our ears. And we can't know it in our heart because God is just too big. It's just unfathomable what God really wants to know. Wants us to know. We just can't even fathom that. Well, they they don't read verse ten. That's good preaching. That's just not biblical. Not all preaching is biblical, by the way. Verse ten, but God hath revealed them to us. Oh, the things I can't know. Yeah, He's revealed them to us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things. Yea, the what? Oh, the deep things of, so God wants you to know some deep things. And God tells you in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the way you know deep things is by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Jesus says that his word is spirit. The words that I speak unto you, John chapter 6, are spirit and they are life. And we, we compare the word of God with the word of God when we have a proper process of studying God's scripture, then and only then does the Holy Spirit of God reveal the deep things of God. You see, we don't compare the Word of God with what this guy says, what that guy says, what the, what the professor at this university, we don't compare it with what he says. We compare it with itself. We compare scripture with scripture, and the only way the Holy Spirit of God teaches and reveals is through that biblical process. But we would rather... We'd, we'd just rather read what everybody else has to say about it instead of doing the due diligence to study this book. To study to show ourselves approved unto God as a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And friend, if you can rightly divide that book, you can wrongly divide it. And you better know how to divide it because that's the difference between shame and being Unashamed. When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account, that's the difference. And so listen, get this key in your notes. There has always been a remnant that has stayed true to God throughout history. So it's not just Catholic or Protestant, no offense. There's always been a group of people, men, that didn't adhere to any religious system. They were just simply Bible believers. They believed what God said literally in his book, And they just took it as it is, and they allowed the Word of God to be the authority in their life. There's always been a remnant, and the reason that they were a remnant was because they held fast some things. They held fast some things. Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, That which you have already, that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And and again, there's some stuff not in your notes, but let let me just give it to you real quick. Man, God commands us in His Word to hold fast some things. Number one, he tells us to hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21 says, Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. And if you compare that to Psalm 119 and verse 39, God says, Turn away my reproach which I fear, for thy thy judgments are what? It's the word of God that's good. And God wants us to hold his word. Number two, Thyatira needed to hold the traditions that they had learned. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 15. It says, Paul writing to the Thessalonians, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions, listen, which you've been taught, and there's not a period right there. And the reason there's not a period is because traditions have to be based on something. You see, a tradition in a church is not a bad tradition if it's based on something. What's it based on? Whether by word or our epistle. Now let me tell you where churches get un, unwrapped and, and really nasty. When you start messing with the traditions. Oh, we've always done it that way. We've always had this color carpet. We've always had this color paint. We've already had this, always had this type of coffee. We've always sang this type of music. We've always done it this way. This is the order of the service. We've always done it. This is what the lights are set at always. This is, this is the way we dress always. Okay, well, that tradition is not necessarily based or founded on the Word of God or the epistles of God. So we have to get to the place where we, we have traditions that are based on the biblical authority. And as a Christian... And as a church member, our traditions cannot exceed the authority of the Word of God. We can't let our tradition somehow be the authority and, and God's Word get put in the back seat. And so Paul says, listen, to the Thessalonians, listen, keep the traditions, hold them fast. But listen, they're traditions you got from the Word of God. So if you can, if you can have biblical tradition, praise the Lord, man. Keep them. If you can't find it in the Bible, Be flexible let it go. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Number three, they held forms of sound words. They held the form of sound words. Again, I know these aren't your notes. 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words. Paul tells Timothy, listen, you have something unique and special given to you of God. You have the form of sound words. You have the word of God. Hold it fast. You've heard it of me in faith and in love, which is in Christ Jesus. Don't let the word go. And by the way, Timothy's a pastor. That's one missionary writing to a pastor saying, listen, the key to ministry is the word of God. You have to hold the word of God. They held, lastly, the faithful word. Again, Paul writing to Titus. He says in Titus 1 and verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. And can I just tell you, if God wants you to hold fast His Word, then you need to be able to find it. You had better be able to find His Word today. And you're not going to find some original manuscript tucked away in some place that you can go grab hold of that and hold on to it because it doesn't exist. So so you you have to ask the question, man, where's God's Word for me today? Where is it so I can hold fast to it as I've been taught? And by the way, that faithful word is able by sound doctrine to exhort and convince gainsayers. Man, church, listen, what are you holding today? Listen, the key to Thyatira and the key to that remnant was that they held on to something. And because they held on to something, they didn't go grab hold of something else. They didn't grab that system of Jezebel. They didn't grab a false religious system that was absolutely against Christ. What are you holding on to today? Okay, and we've got to finish. Point number five, we see the challenge. i got three pages of notes left in five minutes, so that, that's, that's bad math, according to me. Look at uh, verse 26. Again, each of these seven churches, Christ gives a challenge at the end of each of these. He says in verse 26, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken into shivers, even as I have received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. The key is in verse twenty five. He says, "That which ye have, hold fast till I come." So Christ is looking for someone to be faithful till he comes. Hello, any of those people in this room? Man, let's be people that are faithful till he comes. Let's hold fast till he comes and then there's a promised reward. So here it is. Here it is. To the overcomer, number 1, they get power over the nations. There's two applications of this. Number 1, the church devotionally, we know that in the millennium we're going to rule and reign with Christ. We have the opportunity to earn the right to rule and to reign with Christ. That's part of our inheritance. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23. Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we're going to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. And when we give an account of our life, it's not going to be for our sin, but it's going to be for what we did since we got saved. How was your life different after you received the gift of salvation? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is, is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it, re, it, it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, by the way, if is conditional, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a what? If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer what? Every Christian needs to pay attention to this passage. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You see, the moment I got saved, there was a foundation that was laid in my life, and that foundation was Jesus Christ. The gospel and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the foundation that is absolutely established in my life the moment I got saved forward. That foundation is laid. But how I build upon that foundation, the Lord will call into account. And God says, listen, there's an opportunity for us as believers in Christ to earn reward based on how we build. And it's Him building through us, but it's, it's our submission to Him. Or there's an opportunity for us to suffer loss. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12 says that if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. But if we deny Him, He will also deny us. And that's not losing your salvation, by the way. That's losing the opportunity to reign with Him. So in this millennial kingdom, God is offering devotionally to the church the opportunity to rule and reign over the nations with Him, to be a part of His government. Who, by the way, there won't be any voting, there won't be any pollsters, There won't be any CNN, Fox News, there won't be any media, there won't be anybody speaking against it. Well, they might be, but you you would be a fool to do that. It will be a perfectly ruled kingdom with a rod of iron, and we get to participate in that if we're faithful stewards. Number two, doctrinally, it's for the nation of Israel, because during the millennial reign of Christ, after Christ's second coming, Israel will be the head of all nations, they will be the head of all nations. Deuteronomy 14 verse 2 says that that, that that group of people is a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. And no offense, Americans, just slow your roll and bring it down a notch because, because God's perspective of the nations is a little bit different than ours. Deuteronomy 28 verses 12 and 13, God says in verse 13 that God is going to make Israel the head of all nations, not the tail. And they're going to be above everyone, and everyone else is going to be beneath them. And in the millennium, listen, there's not going to be any more united nations. There's not going to be a woman, Jezebel, ruling over the nations of this world because the kings of this earth are committing fornication with her. No, listen, God's people, Israel, will be the head of all nations, and all other nations will be subject to them. See for reference King Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10. Because, man, listen. The Jewish king ruled over a kingdom that every other Gentile nation bowed down to. God showed you that in the Old Testament. It's going to happen. That's a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thy inheritance. That's the Gentiles. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. For thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. By the way, if you read Psalm chapter 2, it's a powerful powerful passage concerning the second coming and the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, the second thing that Christ promised to give the overcomer, not only power over nations, number two, the morning star. And we've got to hurry because we're out of time. Again, devotionally, as we look in church history, we're going to see that that Thyatira Church period ends around 1000 AD, and God's going to allow a man named John Wycliffe, historically, who was a Catholic priest but would become a key figure in what would ultimately become the Protestant Reformation. He's actually given the title by historians, not by Christ, but by historians, as the morning star of the Reformation. He's also a key figure in the translation of getting the Scriptures into English. And so we're going we're to talk about John Wycliffe in a couple of weeks. Devotionally, again, man, God's coming out of that Thyatira period historically in church history And where the word of God is is locked down in Latin, where nobody can read it or understand it, God's about to deliver it into the language of the common man. And he's going to use a man named John Wycliffe to make the scriptures, to, to begin that transition of getting the scriptures in the language of the people. But ultimately, doctrinally, man, the morning star is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. We know that from Revelation 22 and verse 16. He says that I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Jesus Christ is the morning star. And then as overcomers, that's who we get. By the way, if you, if you just a, a Bible note, if you study that phrase morning star in your Bible... If you have Morning Star in Isaiah 14 verse 12, versus Son of the Morning in Isaiah 14 and verse 12, you need to be a little concerned, because that passage in Isaiah chapter 14 is specifically dealing with Lucifer. Right. Right. Lucifer is not the Morning Star. Jesus Christ is. Lucifer is the Son of the Morning. And again, I, you know, just we, we always want to give credence to biblical authority, and we, words matter. And sun of the morning is not the same as morning star. They're different. How do you know that? They're spelled different. <laughs> Took me a long time to figure that one out. You too can be a preacher one day. Okay, so listen. That, that's all stuff you can study. Let, let's wind this thing down so we can get done and we pray. Okay, listen. I think the first, the first point to consider, you can close your Bibles this morning. The first point to consider is this. As we look at Thessalonica, man, there was a remnant there. They just didn't buy into what was happening globally in Christianity. They just didn't buy it. As a matter of fact, the key to them not buying into it was they had something, and what they had, they just held on to it. They just held on to a biblical authority. They just held on to what what God's Word said simplistically. They didn't buy all the pomp and circumstance and, and all the appeal of a religious system that at its root was baseless and truthless and they suffered for that but man they held fast what they had what are you holding on to and and as a Christian listen let me encourage you you got to find something to hold on to you either got to learn to hold on to Christianity or religion or you got to learn to hold that book if you hold the book it will lead you to the right definition of Christianity does that make sense but man if you're just holding on to religion that's a dangerous thing man it's a dangerous thing. So what are you holding on to? Are you holding on to the book of religion? Number two, are you overcoming? Man, don't fall for the spirit of this age. Don't fall for false religious systems. Don't fall for every new doctrine. A friend of mine says, if it's new, it's probably not true. <laughs> That's a pretty good word. Because, man, listen, there, we can go back to what Christ taught. We can go back to what Paul taught. We can go back to what Timothy taught. It's all there for us. We don't have to move away from that. And I think the most important question is, what are you going to receive at the judgment seat of Christ? You know, when we have been given the opportunity to rule and reign with Christ, that's not a guarantee. That's based on our response to His gift of salvation in our life. Will you rule and reign with Christ? Will you receive the opportunity to have power over nations with Him? Man, or listen, are you are you at risk of losing reward? Not because you're not saved just because you're not holding on to the right thing. And if that's you, listen, will you repent? Will you just turn back to Christ? Get serious about your walk with him. Because listen, he's serious about his walk with you, for sure. Let's pray. Father, we love you this, this morning, God. Thank you for your word. I pray.